Before we jump into today's episode, I have some very exciting news. Nordic Naturals' number one selling fish oil is now in gummy form. If you've been listening to our podcast, you know by now just how important omega-3s are for optimizing immune function, supporting a healthy brain and heart, and above all else, keeping our cells healthy, which supports every structure and process in our bodies. However, we also know that it can be very tough to meet your omega-3 needs through diet alone. And for some people, swallowing a pill is just not very appealing. Luckily, in just two chewable gummies, you get 1,200 milligrams of omega-3s, which is our highest potency omega-3 gummy. And they're also delicious, which helps you remember to take them each day. Head to Nordic.com and use the code NaturallyWell15 for 15% off our new Ultimate Omega Gummy Chews and start making omega-3s part of your daily routine. Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, registered dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today's guest is Maya Feller of Brooklyn-based Maya Feller Nutrition. Maya is a registered dietitian nutritionist who is a nationally recognized nutrition expert. In her practice, she provides medical nutrition therapy for the management of and risk reduction of non-communicable diseases. She received her master's of sciences in clinical nutrition at New York university and whether addressing the nation or working one-on-one with groups, Maya believes in providing nutrition education from an anti-bias patient-centered culturally sensitive approach. Maya is dedicated to promoting nutrition education that helps the public to make informed food choices that support health and longevity. Maya shares her approachable, real food-based solutions to millions of people through regular speaking engagements, writing in local and national publications, via her social media account, MayaFellerRD, and as a national nutrition expert on Good Morning America, GMA3, What You Need to Know, and more. She is the author of the Southern Comfort Food Diabetes Cookbook, Over 100 Recipes for a Healthy Life, and her next book, Eating from Our Roots, with 80-plus healthy home-cooked favorites from cultures around the world, which will release January 24th, 2023. In this episode, Maya teaches us that there is a more delicious way to eat sustainably and healthfully by getting back to flavorful traditional cooking methods from cultures around the world. She shares why it's so important to include your culture in your meals and how we can also have them support our health. Learn ways to enhance flavor while also enhancing your health. This episode is all about cooking in a way that feeds both our soul and our health. Maya, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you on. I feel like this has been like over a year in the making. Um, and I finally get to talk to you and we get to talk about your new book, which I am pumped about. But before we get into that, I'd love for you to just start off with telling our guests a little bit more about yourself and your journey to becoming one so passionate about nutrition. And then what led you on this path to then writing Eating from Our Roots? Well, first I have to say, Kate, I'm thrilled to be on it. I'm so happy to actually talk to you since we have so many colleagues in common. You're right. This has been a long, long time coming. Um, so thanks for having me. Uh, it, I guess that's such a, it's such a good question. Like, um, so I'm going to go back a little. Um, I actually stumbled upon nutrition, uh, which is like very funny. Uh, my undergraduate degree was in theater and everyone says, oh, that's why you're so comfortable with public speaking. And I say, no, 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 not the kind of theater you thought or are thinking of. 
like my undergraduate degree was in experimental, like theater of the absurd, avant-garde theater. So not like, oh, let's say words to each other that make any sort of sense, right? So no, had nothing to do with public speaking. Um, and after undergrad, I kind of, I went out and I started doing some experimental theater and I quickly learned, Kate, that um, it is really hard to, A, make a living where you can pay your rent and eat like actual food <laughs> doing avant-garde absurdist theater. It's very niche. You know what I mean? Like there was a strong following of like the same 10 people in New York who were like, yes, I love this. Um, so... I, I I remember I got this like very kind of straightforward basic job that I loved and I spent a lot of time volunteering because I had this really like nine to five that I could go in, get work done and then spend the rest of my time volunteering. And I started training for the Boston Marathon around that time. And like we, my running partner, who's a really good friend of mine, had a whole bunch of health issues because we didn't know what we were doing. Either she was overhydrated or underhydrated, and she was in the hospital a couple of times. Um, I lost like tons of weight, like really quickly, and I was just like always hungry. So it was basically a disaster. You're <laughs> like, what's happening? And I remember going online one night, and I was like, nutrition for runners, <laughs> and I was like, oh. This is like an entire like area of study. There's plenty of science and it's so, yeah. So I actually stumbled upon kind of this, the science of nutrition. And I come from this really academic family and my dad was like, there will be no certificate in your future. You will go for the terminal degree. And I was like, okay, very well done. And so that's honestly how I became a dietitian. I applied to one school. Thank goodness I got in. Um, and uh, truthfully, I don't even know. I'm just being very honest with you. So I applied to the school because I didn't have to take the GRE because I'd come from theater. Right. So like I had no science. Maya, background. That's that's exactly <laughs> why I have my master's in nutrition was because they let me in without taking the GREs. So right? yeah. I feel you. Yeah. And I mean, like absurdist theater, I was like, oh, this is not going to end well if I have to take this GRE business. Um, and then I got, and it turned out like when I started studying nutrition that I really loved the science part of it. And I really loved kind of the metabolism of the macronutrients, the protein, fats, and carbs. I was super into the micronutrient study. I loved anatomy and physiology. And then I fell in love with community nutrition and so that's how I kind of bridged the work that I had done as like a volunteer with the science. Um, and then I just, that, that's where I said, I said, all right, now that I'm done, I really want to be in a community that has been underserved and historically marginalized. And I want to use what I've learned from an evidence-based science perspective to help people who are living with HIV, AIDS, and hep C to really th think about food in a different way and to think about nutrition and as well, holistic health, right? Like what does that look like within a system that is pretty broken? Um, and so I went from like funny avant-garde theater to working in this like pretty heavy duty community setting. Um, and then when I had my, my son, I realized that similar to avant-garde theater, working in the community, it's really hard to have a family um, because it, you, you're just not paid well. And that's when I actually went out on my own. 
Um, and I began consulting and I opened my own private practice because it allowed me to actually have an income that could support myself and my family. That's so nice. And I, I love too that with your own practice, you can say yes to what you want to say yes to. And so you can still do those things, right? Like you can still be part of community nutrition, but yeah, maybe it's more as that consultant versus also like there's long hours in community nutrition and you also get so invested. Yes. Like you get so invested in the people and it's hard to pull away from it, you know, oh. and then also still have that emotion left for your family when you come home. Kate, I was working easily 60 hours a week. And so the program that I was running was Monday through Friday. So like, you know, your regular 45 hour work week. And then because I care so much about food Mm -hmm. and the quality of food on Saturdays, I was driving around picking up leftovers from CSAs because I had a feeding program, right? And a meals program. So we had a program where people, people could come and pick up, you know, individual pieces of food, like fresh produce, but also canned goods. And I wanted to make sure that the fresh produce was delicious and culturally relevant. And so I, you know, worked with these CSAs, picked up their extras. I worked with the Park Slope Food Co-op. I'm based in New York to have them bring whatever they would take to what they call soup. So soup kitchen. Um, And so we, I was just constantly working. My heart was 100% in it. 110, maybe 200% in it. And I thought, I don't know how I can do this for my lifetime and to have a family. So I chose, you know, to say like, I want to have a family. And then in my private practice, I take insurance. I've got a great team of RDs and we're able to slide our scale so that we can continue to work with people who really cannot afford individual nutrition counseling. I donate some of my time, you know, on various boards. And then, you know, I do public speaking. Um, And so I really try to make sure that I'm still living a life as a dietitian that truly supports community culture and inclusion, um, while also being thoughtful about how I Talk about nutrition when I'm addressing like the general public. Yeah. And, you know, making some money, Maya, and having time for your family because that it is, it's crazy how much like, you know, I only experienced it a little over a year ago, but how much life changes when you have a baby in yeah. terms of just how you feel about things too. Um, well, we could go on and on about that. But so how did all of that experience and your experience in private practice, but then also your community experience lead you to deciding and coming up with the idea to write eating from our roots. So I love that question, Kate. Um, and it's fascinating. Uh, people are probably like, why do they keep harping on money? Um, and I think my work as a community dietitian and working with people who lived so much below the poverty line. And then also being a person who was like a manager, but also, you know, not making a salary that was abundant, right? And really having to pay attention to my money. Made you also me live in, you live in New York, Maya. The most expensive place <laughs> in the world, like the most expensive, right? But it also really made me look at food from a different perspective, look at health from a different perspective. And I saw that the people in my program 
who absolutely did not have access to the variables that are needed to express optimal health, right? So living without a diagnosis of diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, knowing where they're going to get their next meal, having the ability to make a choice about, I would like this food versus that food. If you're reliant on emergency food services or a meals program, you have no more choice. If you live in a neighborhood that's experiencing food apartheid, your choices are made for you because you purchase what is affordable, right? And so I saw in my work there that social determinants of health are completely linked to how we think about food, how we interact with food, our health outcomes, the health outcomes of our children. And it is a generational, it's cyclical experience. And so when, you know, I had the opportunity to write a book, a cookbook, it was clear that the front matter would be 100% focused on this idea that we, you know, we know is true because now the CDC, I mean, well, we knew it before, but the CDC is absolutely saying, right, that racism is a factor in terms of poor health outcomes. And so I wanted to make sure that the front matter was really honoring the lived experience of historically marginalized communities and also dismantling the culture of hierarchical food, right, in wellness. So that's that was what the front matter was. And I also knew that the recipes had to be an expression of global cuisine, right? Because if we're thinking about expanding our palate, making uh, the nutrients diverse and more available, then we have to actually eat more rather than restrict. Uh, And I also think that when we have flavor at the forefront and when we have foods in their whole and minimally processed form, especially ones that are in season, then we've got delicious dishes from around the globe and the choices are endless. So the front matter, there's going to be some education. And then the recipes are just there to delight the taste buds and take people around the globe. Yeah. And you bring up, you know, even just talking about using foods that are in season, right? It's like that also helps our wallets. It also generally gets you better nutrition because it's not traveling as far um, hopefully, right. Like look for local if you can, but you're, you really are getting like the best bang for your buck, which is something we're also thinking of. And I think a big piece to it. And what I love my, that, you know, every time I've heard you speak that you always bring in is that cultural aspect. And that's what really connects us to food because I mean, I feel like now, unfortunately, it's so far and few between when we actually feel connected to the food we're eating um, or we're trying to avoid foods that maybe invoke a special memory because it's not so healthy, right? Which I definitely want to get into, like, how can we make some of those um foods that, you know, we grew up eating in our culture or that our grandma made, like, what are some great tips that we can, you know, healthy swaps that we can make, but that cultural aspect is so important for keeping us connected to our food. Um, and one thing I'm just going to read a quote that, um, 
was part of it, well, part of your book, but there's a more delicious way to eat sustainably and healthfully by getting back to flavorful traditional cooking methods from cultures around the world. And I think that sums up in my perspective, like just your book in general, and that can, it really can hit with everyone. Um, because we do, I mean, I find with clients all the time, it's so funny. Like there is no flavor factor anymore. People are like, okay, well, I have my protein. Like, you know, they're thinking, I have my, you know, my whole foods, carbohydrates, I have my vegetables. And I'm like, okay, well, what's the flavor theme tonight? Like, what are, you know, how are we making this delicious and feeling connected to it? Um, and sometimes, you know, I'm so glad you have so many good recipes in there because sometimes people just don't know where to start. Like they don't know, or they're, they're, they weren't exposed to that much culture. And so they don't even know like what recipes to go for or what they would even try. Um, but I'm curious, how would you say Maya, just from the research you've done and also working with so many different cultures, how can we bring culture into our food, but still make it part of a healthy lifestyle? So the first thing that I like to remind people is that when we're saying culture, culture is basically the social norms that any group agrees upon, right? So everyone is has the opportunity to identify as a part of a cultural group, right? So there are cultural norms that are linked to ethnicity, right? There are cultural norms that are linked to gender identity and expression. And so I like to remind everyone that culture is not something that is reserved for people outside of the U.S., right? So that's where we're going to start. There's tons of culture, especially around Americana. Um, and there's a very particular food culture that's assigned to the idea of wellness. So we'll start there also. I think part of what has happened, especially within the continental U.S., when we look at it from like a historical kind of perspective around food, there was a time, right, in the 40s when food in this country was very straightforward, quote unquote, right? And you had your protein, you had your fat, and you had your carbohydrate. Once people began to migrate from other places in the world, including Europe, Asia, parts of Africa, Latin America, Caribbean, South Pacific, but as these migrations happened, food and flavor profiles shifted. I mean, think about Julia Child, right? Like that's a perfect example. When Julia Child began introducing flavor, people were not like 100% on board. It took a moment. And then they were like, wow. So if we're really thinking about food in this country, um, 
once it became known as America, because there were indigenous food patterns that are completely different. Um, and so I want to clarify that, yeah, I'm talking about after colonization. Um, there's been lots of shifts. And then, of course, you know, we entered that like snack well diet kind of phase where we took the fat out of everything and we started using all of this like really crazy stuff to bring up the mouthfeel. And then we had, of course, the whole high protein revolution, right? Um, I don't really know where we are now. We're somewhere between don't eat this, do eat that, only eat on Tuesdays, but maybe not Wednesdays. And there's like a ton of guilt and shame involved. Um, we're, we're in the we're in the opinion phase, Maya. It's just lots of opinions. It's tons of opinions, tons <laughs> of opinions, Kate. But the thing that's so interesting about that, and the reason, like, I went all the way back, is because actually, you said it perfectly, right? These opinions inform how we define what healthy is mm-hmm. and who gets to be a part of the in wellness crowd, right? And everyone that's on the outside of the the wellness crowd gets like, well, you've done something wrong and damned. Yeah. And And I think I was just gonna say, you know what, and I actually, I almost want to clarify. And I was looking at my notes, like, I think for me, because it's so hard, right? Like we hear like healthy lifestyle, right? Or a healthy way of eating, but also it's like, it's all very subjective as well. I think the biggest thing, and I'm curious if you agree is it's more so disease prevention. Like how can we live in a way, eat in a way that makes us one, like I always talk about, it's all just about feeling good, feeling good, you know, to get up every day, to feel good in your body, to feel good mentally. Um, And in the end, yeah, like live as long as we can. Yes, I agree. And so that's the whole thing, right? Is that when we're talking about health, wellness, and we're talking about the variables that are needed to express a person's best health, right? And not um, have early onset metabolic dysfunction, that's linked into systems, right? That's linked into structures. And just as you said, healthy is completely subjective, right? Uh, what's healthy for one may not be healthy for others. Also, it's completely dependent on a person's health status. If there's the presence of any allergies or autoimmune conditions, right? So there's so much that has to be taken into consideration when we're using a word as loaded as healthy and good for you. I absolutely think that for sure we want to prevent disease I think we also want to encourage a good quality of life for as long as possible, right? We want people to be able to, as you said, move around when they want to, right? Be free from pain, Um, hopefully be able to emotionally handle stressful situations, right? And move through them without having too much anxiety or huge bouts of depression. We want some, you know, stability in mood. Um, But again, all of that is linked to systems. It's so funny, Kate. Last week, I was speaking with someone about eczema and why rates of eczema are higher in Black communities in the U.S. And when we were doing research on my end, 
what we found was that in areas where there were more environmental toxins and pollutions, people tended to have higher rates of eczema. Again, it goes always back to systems and structures. And so I know when people have what they need from a food, nutrition, mental health perspective, when they're able to take time off, engage in de-stressing activities, have some laughter, be connected to community, family, all of those things, we see better health outcomes. There was this research study, and I have to look it up, where there were a group of people in the southern part of the U.S. who didn't follow any particular pattern of eating. They weren't like really focused on whether or not, you know, they had a high intake of vegetables or fruits, antioxidants, like that wasn't really the thing. It was mostly about community and being together. And in this study, that group of people had very low um, cardiovascular disease rates. And as soon as people moved out from that town, they all began to get sick, similar to the Pima Indians. Do you remember that study from grad school Mm -hmm. that we all had to take a look at? I mean, so it says a lot, right? That this idea of slow food, slow community, being connected does so much for like the greater good of people. Yeah. I'm just looking up my, cause I, I actually, I feel like I've brought this up in a few episodes now, because I think it's so powerful. Um, are you familiar with, um, the Harvard study where they actually studied the, I'm going to actually, I have my notes here, but 724 men for 75 years. And what they found was the people that ended up living the longest and were, had the best health outcomes were the ones that had, that were the most connected to their community and had the most meaningful relationships. And I had a note in my notes for today to bring that up because I think it really does tie in so nicely with, again, like bringing in whatever your culture is and bringing in that cultural aspect into your food, which I do. I I don't know. I find so many times with clients, like they're trying to shy away from it, even with just having Thanksgiving people are like, well, it's just Thanksgiving. So I'm only going to eat this way just today. And I'm like, no, like, life happens. I'm like, it does, <laughs> but I'm also like stretch Thanksgiving out as long as you can. Like, that's where like you, you know, having those memories and feeling connected to your food also makes you connected to the people around you. And it brings in a whole other aspect of health, right? Like when we talk about the these men, the ones with the best health outcomes and lived the longest were the ones that felt so connected and they felt happier too, which is a big thing we, you know, try to promote here on our podcast is it's not only about health. It's also about being happy because you could be, you know, quote unquote, right. Healthiest person in the world. But what if you're not, like you said, quality of life, what if you're not enjoying life? What if you're not happy with your life? Um, or you don't have meaningful relationships you know, what's, what's the point? So I I do love that, um, bringing in your own culture into your food and celebrating it really brings us back to that connection, which can ultimately have, give us a better quality of life and have us live longer. I agree. You know, I also think like your first question where you said, well, you know, what are the healthy tips and swaps? Yeah. Um, Or anything you've come across that you're just like, oh, that, you know, that, 
like first, I guess when I ask that, Maya, I'm also thinking about someone who maybe isn't in the best health right now and they're trying to avoid some of, you know, certain foods that they love from their culture because of that, not realizing there may be a few swaps that they could make that still give them that, you know, I always say like that hug of a meal, um, but aren't going to put them in a worse health outcome state. So, you know, I've thought about this a lot. Um, Someone said to me, I was in a work setting and someone said that a cardiologist had said to a Haitian woman, you can't eat Haitian food because it's unhealthy and it will kill you. And I said, and then I said, you know, that's really disconcerting. And there was someone in the group, this was a work group and they're Haitian. They said, yes, but it's all swimming in oil. And I said, you know, that's really interesting. I have not, I've only been to Haiti once in my life, right? But, you know, I made it my business to check out the food. Um, And I have to say, when I was in Haiti, there was nothing that was swimming in oil. And I said, I wonder if as people become acculturated and they leave their land of origin and they're trying to replicate what they made at home, Mm -hmm. if changes happen to some of those foods where you know, like if you go through Latin America and the Caribbean, I mean, Kate, like the greens there, because the soil is just un- so rich. It's so <laughs> like you can go into the rainforest and literally 15, 20 different species can be growing in like, you know, like 12 square. It like, it's like unbelievable. Right. So of course the flavors of those you know, leafy greens are going to be just so much more rich and it's going to be different than here in this country where we have really different farming practices. And I don't want to get into that because we don't even have time. Yeah. Um, but it, but no, but you know what I mean? Like it's just different. And so then how do you bring the mouthfeel up? Then you add sugar, fat, and salt, right? To get it closer to what the original was. And so what I actually like to remind people is many of the things here are actually distant cousins of what that original was. And so what I often say is go back to the base and think about what was the base of that dish. And many of them, Kate, many of them actually are plants in their whole and minimally processed form, right? Of course, with things added to it, Um, And it's, of course, I'm now thinking about a colleague of mine who's Filipino, who's like, actually, it's just a piece of meat. Um, (laughs) But he also reminded me that, you know, culturally, people may sit down to a three to five ounce piece of meat. And that is it just because of how they actually interact with food. Totally different than how we sit down to a meal in the U.S. in 2022. But you know what I mean? Like, So I'd like to remind people to go back to the base and then also think about, is there a way for you to have that food, even with whatever your health condition is, in its unadulterated form, in a mindful and intentional way where you sit, you enjoy, you eat it without guilt, and then you move on. Mm -hmm. Easier said than done easier said than done. But what does that look like? If you really want that, I'm just thinking like macaroni pie that's made in Trinidad and Tobago, what does it look like if you sit down and you have a serving of macaroni pie, you enjoy it and you move on? And if you have to modify 
for a health condition, right? What are the things that you can add, just as you said, that give you that hug, but that are antioxidant, phytonutrient, omega-3, you know, all your trace minerals, rich in those things that really support the body on that base cellular level and help your body like, you know, regulate in an anti-inflammatory way, right? What does it look like when you begin to add more of those to your regular pattern of eating? And you make that the center of your interaction with food so that you're able to have your favorites just as they are in a mindful, intentional way without guilt and shame. Yeah, no, I love Maya that you said, what can you add? Because often you'll see people too, like if they, let's say we'll use that macaroni bake as an example, they're like, okay, well, and especially someone who's kind of thinking more so about calories, like okay, well, if I'm going to have that, I'm going to have nothing else on my plate. And it's like, well, in reality, actually adding protein and having some antioxidants from some vegetables or, you know, greens, and maybe eating those first two are going to help support your blood sugar. And then you can still have that helping. And something I find with a lot of people too, it can be tough. Like if, um, a recipe you have makes a lot and you're either living on your own, it's just you and maybe, um, uh, you know, a roommate or partner and you're like, oh, but then I'm going to have leftovers for days. Or you do find you have leftovers for days and you're eating for days. And like, maybe that first day you were able to move on from it. But then like when you're eating it every day, the guilt and shame just creeps in. That's when, which ties in so perfectly with our connection, you invite people over and share that recipe with them And it makes it, I mean, for anyone listening, right? Like if you have cooked something and you share it with people and you watch them enjoy it, to me, there is no better feeling. Like it's, it makes that food that much better. Um, So it's, I'm just so glad you brought up adding versus, cause you know, we're, like I said, like we were first talking about like, you know, if there's little swaps we can make or things like that. one thing I found just even with vegetables, which is funny that so many people shy away from using oils or butter even, um, because they're, you know, nervous about adding the extra calories or, but in reality, what you know, Maya is we actually need that fat to help help absorb absorb the the nutrients. It's so funny. Like even for my son, (laughs) I, I like lather some good, you know, I try to give him some grass fed butter ones. I also think it tastes better, but I lather it up on his green beans, everything. And so many people have been shocked when they hear me say it, they're like, Oh, and you, the dietitian? I'm like, yeah, one, it tastes better when vegetables (laughs) have fat on them. And two, it, you actually need it. But there are little ways too. like if you are adding some oil, but you don't want to add too much and you're sauteing, I found like even just, you know, putting a little bit of, um, I always have vegetable broth or vegetable stock in my fridge, adding some of that to help steam it versus water. And it actually adds, imparts some flavor, but isn't, you know, you know, to me, adding water to steam stuff, right? Like it doesn't really do anything for the vegetable. (laughs) Um, and then you also may find if you're sauteing, you don't have to add as much oil. So there's, there's little things you can do like that. But I think what Maya said is the best is just making sure when you're having those foods is 
adding and looking at your plate, what other foods can like help support that and also help keep you full. So you don't end up overeating the right, the casserole of mac and cheese, which I think we've all done. Um, but I love that tip. But you know, so here's the other thing that I have to say to people, right? Um, we have a lot of fear around food, like a lot of fear. And I strongly believe, this is my personal belief and also my clinical experience with patients, when we reframe how we think about interacting with food and we take words like overeat out, right? As controversial as it is. And what we talk about is centering a pattern of eating that's supportive of the individual, then it's a different conversation. And so with my patients, what we really work to do is say, like, what does that majority of the time look like? Is that majority of the time in line with your desired health goals, as well as whatever your current health is? Listen, if someone has cardiovascular disease, we have to pay attention to added salts, added sugars, and added fats. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it, right? So we're clear on that. And so even within that, we're saying, what does your majority of the time look like? Are you eating things that are familiar to you? Are you eating things that taste good to you? Are you eating things that are accessible? Are you spending, are you budgeting your time in the kitchen wisely? Are you there for hours? Because I had one patient who was telling me we had all these wonderful things. And then she said she was there for like six hours. And I was like, oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. Now food has become resentful, right? Like you're resenting the action of cooking. There's so much to take into consideration. And once we begin to change how we're thinking about spending time in our kitchen, change how we're thinking about getting foods into our kitchen, utilizing a combination of frozen, boxed, jarred, canned with intention, reading labels, making sure that it is what we want in our pantry, right? It does fit within our budget. There's nothing worse than spending $12 on strawberries and either they go bad or they're eaten in one sitting. And then you're like, oh, goodness gracious, right? Maybe frozen strawberries are the way to go. There's like less anxiety around like how much it costs or whatever, you know what I mean? But are we utilizing produce, animal proteins in ways that are sustainable? Meaning can we replicate those behaviors over and over again so that we can actually have the health that we want? Because at the end of the day, everybody wants to thrive, right? We all want to be able to get together with friends, family, laugh. If it's a walk that we go on, whatever it is. I haven't met a single patient, Kate, that's like, I was happy that I was laid up in bed because my blood sugars were so elevated and I felt terrible. Nobody says that ever. No, yeah, no one said ever. Right? So it's like, if we do a full reframe, and I understand what I'm asking for is super radical. And I understand also that it's the opposite of how we think about food. I often tell my patients, when you go out and you make a choice for you, that's a radical act. because the foodscape is infinitely confusing and it's not actually people forward. The people who are people forward are the farmers. They're like, we just want to make food for you to eat, right? There's so much that we have to contend with when we're thinking about getting food onto our plate day after day. We eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I want it to be easier for people, 
right? I want it to be no shame, no guilt, filled with flavor and good for them. And so I feel like, you know, when I was putting these recipes together and really thinking about how I work with patients, like if I could wave my magic wand over the U.S. and get rid of chronic illness. (laughs) I love that. You're our fairy godmother, Maya. You know know what? So I'm curious, Maya, what do you say to your patients who are really intimidated by cooking? Or don't they say, or say, which we get all the time, I don't like cooking, but realize like there are so many other things tied to that. What's your best advice to them or how, how do you approach it? Oh, I say that's no problem whatsoever. All right. So what are the foods that you like? Okay. How do you feel about a microwave? How do you feel about frozen produce? Um, I was in the grocery store the other day and there are all of these blends now. There's like a Romanesco blend that has like Mm -hmm. Romanesco and asparagus and potato had like 7% of the daily value for sodium, the entire bag. I was like, what? This is amazing. Like very little added fat. You know what I mean? I was like, this is incredible. Something like that. If the person eats, you know, animal proteins, they're single, you know, pack chicken, fish, get those out. And literally it's like very minimal food prep. There is some cooking involved. You can do that. I also say to people too, like, if that's really not your thing, then let's find an already prepared meal that meets your, you know what I mean? Your individual health goals has the ingredients that we want in it for you. And then is there a way that we can round it out with just like a simple vegetable side or something like that? But I'm all about like use the convenience items that are intentionally, you know, made to support being able to eat nourishing foods. Yeah. And I find too, with a lot of people, their barriers actually that they don't think they can make delicious tasting foods. So they don't like being, they don't like cooking. They don't like being in the kitchen because they don't find that they're good at it. Yeah. And so I'm curious, cause I know in your book, you have a lot of good ways to flavor enhance. What are your favorite ways to enhance flavor? So I this is really funny. One of my dear, dear friends in my personal life has a very hard time with garlic and onion. And it's like not great for her GI. Um, I totally just outed the person by saying who they are um, without their name. <laughs> But so it's not great for their GI. Um, And it's funny because I, you know, listen, I recognize that people have various tolerances, but one of my favorite things is to start a pan with garlic and onion. My second favorite thing is to start a pan with fresh herbs. Summertime is my time because everything is just growing and bursting. I love it all. Rosemary, thyme, tarragon, sage, uh, I mean, you know, uh, like I just dill chives, like I could go all the various like spring onions. Like I love to use those vegetables and herbs as a flavor enhancer. And then I also really love things, you know, some of the dried herbs and spices to bring up the flavor. Like yesterday I made um, pan fried tofu. And I started it with like a little bit of lemon um, and then some black pepper, a little bit of salt. And then I was like, oh, it needs something because I had green beans on the side. And so then I did some like, you know, um, herbs de Provence, because really what I was thinking of was like Mm -hmm. a kind of like a lemony thing. Um, And that and it was delicious. 
like absolutely delicious, but it is about playing with the flavor. And it was nice because the outside was lightly seared and there was a crunch and it was extra firm. So crunchy on the out, like still like flavorful and soft on the in with green beans and then like a mixed green salad that also had a bunch of different colors. And I feel like, oh, and then I made like a tahini dressing to go with it. Um, But I do feel like, you know, once you flavor your vegetables the way that we would animal proteins, then you're more likely to want to interact with them. Yeah. And kids can handle them too, right? Like that's, I see a lot of people shying away from adding seasonings. And it's so funny, Maya, you were just saying that meal because, and this is, you know, maybe good for someone who's a little bit intimidated, like, oh, that sounds so good what she make, but like, I can't make that. Those ingredients are pretty much what I put in our crock pot this week. It was chicken, herbs of Provence, thyme, green beans, carrots, lemon, and garlic. And we have chicken for lunches, for dinner, for anything. And it's hands off. You just dump everything in a pot and you can walk away. (laughs) Totally. I mean, this morning in my Dutch oven, um, and I should have done it in the instant pot, but I wanted the Dutch oven. I put in like white beans and pinto beans and I was going to do like a kale and white bean kind of stew and add in leftover turkey from, you know, this long weekend. Um, And so, but I do think that it's like, get in the kitchen, make mistakes, right? Like not everything that I make is delicious. Like I've made some terrible food. I've made, I've made bad food, like really bad food. And that's important, right? Because then I'm like, I don't like that. I won't do it again. But it's like, think about how can you use herbs other than salt? I did put a little salt for it because my family was eating it, not me. And I'm salt sensitive. I don't, I can't really do too much salt. Um, But think about like, what flavors do you like? Are you a warm flavor person, right? Like, and then start playing with some of the warmer spices. Are you a bright person? You know, do you like tangy, acidic things? Start playing with that and just get in there. And it doesn't have to be like for the meat. It can be a salad dressing and you can take that salad dressing all different directions, low stakes, very low stakes. And I like, I always find the more I can get clients in the kitchen, the more comfortable they are and the more willing they are to try new things. And it's just this spiral effect. So just getting in the kitchen, like you said, whether it's just making a salad dressing or making a side dish, maybe it's even just putting the frozen veggie medley in the pan and adding, I love now that there are so many um, like frozen garlic cubes. I just got frozen basil cubes the other day and I'm like, this is perfect. Just pop it in and add flavor that way. Um, before we jump in, Maya, because I know we're wrapping up to our rapid fire QA, are there any recipes from your book that you want to highlight that you just love that's probably gonna, you know, get all of our mouths watering? Um, but to give us a little preview. That's so funny. So um, I asked a chef friend of mine, um, I said, like, what's your favorite kitchen? gadget or utensil. She said to me, very cheeky, it's like asking you, Maya, which child of yours is your favorite? And I was like, oh, touche, touche. Um, so it's like, and it's really hard because I don't know that I have a favorite recipe from the book because they're all so good. And every time I re- return back to one, I'm like, God, this is delicious. 
Um, we have some that are very, you know, quick to make some green recipes yeah. that are quick. And we have some that are labor intensive, like full disclosure, you're going to be in your kitchen for a moment. So invite some friends over. Um, <laughs> but that's but, fun too. Totally. I mean, Kate, that's so hard. I don't know. Well, are there what, any, okay. Here's maybe here's an easier way. Are there any recipes from the book that you find you're making for your family a lot? You know, this, so this is this is the thing, Kate. I cook every single day. Yeah. And so I have revisited almost every single recipe. Um, in the I know this is terrible. This is what this is the teaser. I'm gonna have to say, guys, you're just gonna have to go out and get the book and figure <laughs> out which ones you love the most. But honest to goodness, like I have I've in the last three weeks or so, I've returned to a number of the recipes just to make. Um, you know, and I had these incredible chefs who contributed and then I worked and I modified them and, you know, did some stuff. Um, there is one recipe. I love seafood. Um, and there is a seafood recipe that does feature lobster or a lobster tail. And that is, for me, it's not my favorite, but it's very reminiscent of my childhood. Yeah. In the oh, northeast how, of the U.S. That's all I can say. I was say, how do you <laughs> not love a good lobster tail? Um, okay. Then, you know what? My, I do have a question for you. And it's kind of, I mean, it's more just, you know, your daily lifestyle related. But do you have any of your own daily, like, health and wellness non-negotiables that keep you feeling good every day? I'm really big about sleep. Um, like I have, a, it's really funny. I was working on a sleep piece recently. And as I was answering the questions that were asked of me, I was like, oh, my sleep routine is like no joke. <laughs> I was like, and it's been no joke since I was a kid. I was like, I, so I'm like really fairly intense about sleep. But like, you know, there are nights, of course, where I stay up with friends and we have fun, but I'm pretty much like wind down, like off my telephone, um, with my family, like dinner, we try to share some family time, a lot of it, a little bit of laughter, you know, just checking in. And then it's like, I mean, I think last night, I think I was in bed. It's nine 15. Like we're like, all right, let's go to bed. Oh, and then we're like, you're speaking my language. Yeah. I'm in bed by nine 30 every night. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my number one. Cause like without sleep, I'm non-functioning, non-functioning. And also the other thing is before it was cool, I was drinking copious amounts of water. I'm like easily like a three liter per day person just, and I infuse it. I just like, there's always, you know, there's cut up clementines, lemons, basil, like mint, ginger, you name it. Like I have an array of teas, you know, from around the world. I was at a friend's house the other night. She's like, you want some tea? I was like, yeah. And it was like some tea that she got in the market in Egypt. I was like, this is incredible. Like I am a sleep and water human being. Those are like my non-negotiables. I love that. Oh my gosh. The, the things a sprig of mint will do to a glass of water. It's amazing. It makes you feel like, I always think I'm like drinking fresh from a stream. When I do that. It just tastes so good. Um, okay. Mys, we love to end every episode with a little rapid fire Q and a. So first thing that comes to mind, and this is really for our listeners to get to know you better. Okay. What is your favorite de-stressing practice or support tool? Baths with essential oils. Coffee or tea? 
coffee 100% from and how, a how do you take it machine. yeah bean to drip machine very very serious with a tiny bit of lactose free milk if i'm feeling spicy i'll mix the lactose free milk with like a non dairy milk but that's it oh oh well okay this one may stump you but hopefully not but you have to give an answer what is your favorite home cooked meal oh um that i make it does. It could be something that you make. It could be something that a family member makes, a friend, anything. This is so hard. Ooh, this is very, very hard. Okay. It's like your biggest hug meal. My biggest hug meal has to be lobster. Hold on. Check this out. <laughs> oh, my God. Lobster. oh, my God. I love it. Yeah. My son made it for me. It's definitely. So every single year on my birthday, since I was 21, I've had the same exact meal and it is lobster and a glass of champagne and maybe some other sides. And so for me, that is like my biggest hug meal. And then the second one is that I had before I turned 21. It's all about the crustaceans. Um, it's curry crab and dumpling from this very particular place mm-hmm. in Tobago. So, um, oh my gosh, yeah. that sounds amazing. I'm like, how, I'm like in my head right now trying to calculate, like, how can I recreate that? <laughs> I don't know if I can. Well, Maya, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. Can you just tell people where can they find you learn more, um, get their hands on your book? Tell us all the things. All the things, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so grateful to your listeners for coming on this little journey with us today. Um, you can find me across social at Maya Feller RD on my website, mayafellernutrition.com. And you can purchase my cookbook, Eating from Our Roots, everywhere that books are sold. It's currently in pre-orders until January 24th, 2023. Oh my gosh, so exciting, Maya. Thank you so much. And hopefully we'll be chatting again soon. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait. This week's actionable step is to make a recipe that feeds your body and soul, utilizing the strategies Maya gave us, and remember what it feels like to really enjoy your meals. Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals, and remember you can catch some of our episodes of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. For something to do in between episodes, follow me on Instagram at livewellwithkate, where I typically live on my stories, providing a variety of daily health and wellness tips. Naturally Wells, hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Steven. If you have any questions, please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com, and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>